Hello and welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. My name's Darren and I'm here with Faith. Hi. Pastor Faith. And we will get to the sermon in just a little bit, but we wanted to make some time and space to talk about something special that we've been having on Sundays. And it's a new song that Pastor Faith, you and your husband Josh wrote, and we've shared it with our community. Tell us a little bit about it. What's the name of it? Yeah. And where did it come from? Yeah, so it's called We Need You. Um, and I, I'm going to root this in First Corinthians 2 when Paul says, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Um, the, the first thing that was written for this song was the beginning of that bridge section that says, We don't need better plans. We don't need clever thoughts. We need your Spirit, O oh God. We don't want the wisdom of man. We want we want a display of God's power, which is really what the world needs. They don't need to see a show. Or even in the area of worship, they don't need to hear good music. We need to see a display of the power of God. So it came from that heart cry. And then the beginning of the song kind of sets up this space where we invite Holy Spirit. We open our hearts. We clear out all the distractions, the things that get in the way. And then just simply cry out for more of Him. And it's this, this longing to be a, a space where the Spirit would rest mm-hmm. as a community. Yeah, I love that. That's such a the heart and core value of Garden Church. Exactly. Knowing that the Spirit is present, like He's welcome to the party and we get to celebrate. And I so appreciate the beauty and creativity that you've been cultivating, not only with worship, but just something that we can invite the rest of our community into. And, and it's so cool when, when uh, in the recording of this song, it's the first time that we shared it. And it's like people have been singing it for weeks. <laughs> and it was just such a cool thing to experience. And so we're so happy for those of you that have experienced that with us on a Sunday morning. And we want to see just more original songs being birthed from this place. Um, that you're talking about, just being saturated in the Holy Spirit. So we are welcoming you to stick around after the sermon where you can hear a live recording of the song, We Need You, and I hope it blesses your heart. resurrection happened the resurrection happened now what or so what the resurrection happened what do we do with an empty tomb this is i think a question that um, puzzles many of us but it also puzzled the earliest followers of jesus it puzzled the gospel writers Uh, They're trying to figure out what it meant for there to be an empty tomb because it it, it kept messing with their paradigm. He died, but he lives. And but it's the world now doesn't look like it used to look, but it kind of does. How do we fit this into our worldview? And I think uh, the early stories that are told in the gospel of Luke and John are stories of disciples, ordinary guys, men and women figuring out what it means to follow a risen Jesus. And I feel, or I'll, I'll say this confidently, that after this, this morning, you will feel uh, like you are in good company. 
when we look and make heroes of the, uh, the gospel stories, we will see that some of those heroes are, are very similar to us. So my, my hope this morning is to answer that question, so what or now what, uh, dealing with the resurrection, but also just to give you, um, uh, just allow us to observe together the stories, the early stories of, of the resurrected Jesus and how human they are, how ordinary, how petty in many ways they, they are and what that means for us today. Are you with me? And we're going to finish Luke today. Luke is a two-part series. The first part is Luke, which is all about Jesus and his mission. And the second part is Acts. Um, they're, they're designed to be together. And Acts is the, the story of Jesus' mission um, fulfilled through the church. So it's the continuation of the mission of Jesus through ordinary people like ourselves. And so we're going to start that in a couple of weeks. I'm really excited. What I'm excited about Acts, um, this is why I'm excited. I I want all of us that follow Jesus, all of us that call the garden home, I want all all the gardeners to see themselves as missionaries, to see ourselves as um, uh, uh, practitioners of the kingdom of God, um, as stewards of God's grace and love and, and work in the world. And that's what Acts is about. Ordinary men and women filled with the Holy Spirit, empowered to live on mission wherever they go until the ends of the earth. So we're going we're gonna to do that together. What an adventure that will be, huh? Am I the only one excited this morning? I mean, 915 was awake. You guys are way more caffeinated. We, we, we have so much to do right now. So um, we're in the book of Luke. We're going to finish it. So if you have a Bible, go to the book of John, because um, we're going to start there <laughs> and we'll go back to Luke. So we're starting to, to look at some of these early stories. John chapter 20. And we're going to start in verse one. So this is John's account of the resurrection early on the first day of the week. While it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb because the men were sleeping um, uh, and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance so she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. Okay, time out real quick. Uh, John is writing the Gospel of John, right? But it was a literary device in the first century that if you were in the story and you were writing the story, you wouldn't actually use your name. You would come up with another way to refer to yourself, a very humble way to refer to yourself. So for John, he chose this great title, the disciple, the one who Jesus loved. And what's great about this is he wrote this, um, this was the last account of the Gospels. All the other Gospels were were written before this, before his. So all the other disciples were dead. And so they couldn't argue with his title. Because I'm sure the other guys would have been frustrated with this. Because who knows. But anyways, that shows a little bit of John's humanity. Uh, So uh, she runs back, tells Peter and John, uh, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. And we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. So they started for the tomb. Catch this story. Um, er, uh, Finally, wait, wait, go back. Sorry. Started for the tomb. What was that last line? Both were running. Yes, thank you for that. But the other disciple, John, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Okay, catch that? He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him because John got there first uh, and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place separate from the linens. Finally, 
the other disciple, John, who had reached the tomb first, just in case the last few sentences were missed. Not only did he reach it first, but Peter was behind him, and John reached the tomb first, uh, who had also, uh, he had reached the tomb first, also went inside, he saw and believed. So, the greatest human event, the greatest event in human history is happening, and John wants you to know that he was there first. Three times he is making it very clear that he runs faster than Peter, that he sprinted faster, that he trained harder, that he was there at the tomb first, even though he didn't go in first, but he was there first. Is that interesting? That when the resurrection happened and when John is telling the story, in some way, ways he's missing the point. Next slide, please. Um, so, before we go on, but does anyone else struggle with this, that, that there's something great happening and you're just focusing on the, the pettiness of, of sibling rivalry? Do, 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 we, do we ever struggle with uh, making sure we let people know who we're connected to, name drop? Or, or how much money we make, or, or that we too got a raise, or, or whatever it was, or I saw the movie too, and this is what I, th- you know, whatever, whatever it is, we, we enter into relationships and we're trying to put ourselves on this, this level or this, this game of some sort. I mean, I guess I'm the only one that struggles with that. But it's in the story of the resurrection. Oh, check this story out. Okay, go to John chapter 21. Um, so Mary, there's another story where, where Mary is heartbroken because she doesn't know where Jesus is. And then she, she's heartbroken and Jesus reveals himself to her. Um, and then there's another story. So there's this, this competition between John and Peter, apparently, that you see in John's gospel. He's letting you know he got there first. Now, what we got to know about Peter is we've all, we've already read this that he denied Jesus three times before he's crucified. He failed Jesus when Jesus needed him most. One of the closest friends that uh, Jesus had. He says, "I don't know him." Three times, and then he's raised from the dead. Now, how would you feel if that was the guilt you were carrying around that you had failed him? Okay, so he raises from the dead. There's stories of this. And then, and then uh, the next scene in John's gospel is they go fishing. Not Jesus. The disciples go fishing. Jesus is on the beach. Um, he hasn't had a, 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 you know, a, a conversation with Peter yet. But there he is fishing. And he, Jesus hollers out to Peter. Um, hey, uh, throw the net on the other side. They catch a big fish, a ton of fish. And then they, Peter jumps into the water, sees Jesus. He already has some fish, and he's cooking on the beach. And uh, they begin to have a conversation. And, and in the gospel, you know what it says? Jesus begins to condemn Peter. Jesus begins to make him feel so guilty because he had an opportunity to do the right thing or the wrong thing, and he did the wrong thing. And, and Jesus just lays on the shame. No, he doesn't do that. You know what he does? Yeah, where is that in the Bible? What's, wait, that's not right. What does he do? He restores him. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. He, Peter is broken because of his failure. His failure to do what Jesus asked him. His failure to follow through. His failure to do the right thing in a moment where he needed to do the right thing. And he failed Jesus. And you know what Jesus does? He meets him in his failure. And he restores him. 
And there's this great narrative of, of restoration. But right after that, this is what happens. I love it. John tells us what, Pe- what Jesus tells Peter. He says this, Very truly, you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you don't want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said, follow me. So Peter is just confronted with the fact that he's going to be a martyr for Jesus. That he's failed him before, but he's restored. And now Jesus says, look, you're going you're gonna to go where you don't want to go. It's, it's, a, it's a prophetic kind of encouragement, I suppose, to Peter. And, uh, and so, and, and actually what happens is Peter dies on the cross upside down because he didn't want to die the same way Jesus died. That's how the story goes. But right after he's confronted with this, check out what's in the next story. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved, John, was following them. When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about this guy? How's he going to go, in other words? How's, how's John going to die? And Jesus answered, what is that to you? Follow me. That in a moment of great kind of information and conviction, Peter is concerned with John. Peter compares himself to John. Peter wants to know what's going on with the other guy. Do, 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 we, do any of us struggle with what about him or her? Or, or, or maybe the question is, why do they always get those things? Why does she always get the nice clothes? Why does he always get the raise or the, the job offer? Why do, why do, of course, they, of course it gets to happen to them. Look at their life. Of course, that's what, that's what we do. We compare ourselves. They have way more Facebook followers or whatever it is for you. They have way more Instagram followers. Or I mean, we don't do this. The pastors don't do this. We don't go on, on Facebook and see how many people got baptized at other churches. Nobody does. Who would be so petty to see what their attendance was at the other church in the valley or your friends that are similar ages that already have books written? Like, nobody would ever do those type of petty things, right? Right? The after the resurrection. <laughs> oh, man. I, I don't do that. I've heard of pastors that do that. <laughs> friends of mine. <laughs> After the resurrection, Jesus' closest friends and followers are struggling with comparison, with sibling rivalry, and missing the point. Are we in good company? How many of us miss it all the time? How many of us go on Facebook and compare ourselves to others? How many, how many of us have friends that follow Jesus that we just wish, you know, that something could go wrong in their life? <laughs> Let's be honest. That's what we do. We're so petty. But so were they. And God used them. Huh. Interesting. There's another story. I love this story. It's in Thomas' story. And what you got to love about Thomas is it's just he's that guy. And here's, it's like a sitcom, you know. He's the Chandler or whatever it is. Of, it goes like this. Now, Thomas, this is John 20. Now, Thomas, also known as Didymus, was one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So Jesus comes to the 11 um, except for Thomas, okay. So apparently when Jesus showed up, 
um, uh, Thomas was out to Chipotle or, or, you know, he's getting food. Like, it's like your friends are having a gathering. They're sitting down at the restaurant and Bono walks into the room, says hi and walks out. And you were in the restroom or something. And you're like, what? Where'd he go? And you can't find him. He's gone. So this happens to Thomas, but it's with the resurrected Jesus. And so uh, the other disciples say, we have seen the Lord. He's been raised from the dead. And Thomas says, um, unless I see the nails the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. So Thomas misses the experience. He doesn't experience it for himself. He was left out. Have you ever felt left out? Have you ever felt like, wow, why do all of those people get to experience those things and I don't get to experience it for myself? People have an encounter with God and they're sharing their testimony and you were there too, but you didn't feel what they felt. You didn't get knocked over or get healed or you prayed for someone too and they didn't get healed or whatever. Do you, have you ever had that? It happened to Thomas. And look at what Jesus does. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them this time. Thank God. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, not why are you doubting me? What's wrong with you? I've taught you everything already. No, he says, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out uh, your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said, my Lord and my God. So Thomas, go to the next slide. Thomas couldn't believe that Jesus was raised from the dead until he experienced it for himself. And Jesus meets him in his doubt. He meets him in his questions. He meets them in the uncertainty. He meets them in the, I got to experience it for myself. And then he shows up and he says, experience it. Apparently, some of Jesus' followers doubt. Some of the followers of Jesus struggle with questions and doubt. Do any of you doubt? Can we be, I want to just say this. Doubt is not the enemy of faith. Okay? If it wasn't for Thomas, we wouldn't know what the way, the truth, and the life is. It's because he asked, no, Jesus, what is the, what, what do you mean? He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Oh, okay, cool. That's who Thomas is. He just didn't get it. But if it wasn't for him, we wouldn't be safe in a community of God to doubt God. It, hear me. It is okay. Because when trials come and those doubts come in, if you're not given space to ask questions... If you're not given a community that stands next to you that says, actually, I've seen the risen Lord, it's okay. Because a week's going to go by and Jesus is going to show himself to you in your doubt and fear. And it's going to be okay. So, next slide. Um, okay. So, apparently, we're in good company. You with me? People are doubting. People are missing the point. People are wanting you to know they run really fast. Um, that's how I would write it. It would be like, I won this many dodgeball tournaments, and he was raised from the dead, or whatever it was. <laughs> Except I haven't won that many, I'll be honest. I keep losing the dodgeball tournament every year to kids, these dang kids, and their quick speed and movable technology. I don't know. Anyways, okay, so moving on. We're going to go to Road to Emmaus. The Road to Emmaus is uh, an amazing story. So go to Luke chapter 24. And uh, Rob talked about it last week. He did a great job. But I want to highlight some things because I believe that this story is so um, powerful for our culture and context when it comes to evangelism. 
This is the story for evangelism, in my opinion. In a, a post postmodern world, in a, a post Christian world, um, this story is for us very helpful as followers of Jesus on how to get Him um, and how to minister to others, how to evangelize. And so, uh, this this story is, and I find this story to be fascinating. Here's here's the thing: I, I love the Bible. In fact, um, I'm teaching a class tomorrow at, called Basics um, at Mackay Coffee. We're doing part two of our Basics class tomorrow night at 7. Um, and I'm going to talk a lot, some of the stuff's in here, but I'm going I'm to uh, talk about the Bible and some other things there, the story of God. Um, why was I telling you that? Oh, yes. Uh, in the story, I, I found some things out. I was doing some research, and I geeked out. I was like, oh, my gosh, this is insane. So you guys are going to get some of the geek part of me. Uh, whether you believe I was a geek or not or nerdy, I am deep inside. Don't let my, my clothing keep you from that. <laughs> it's all a cover, right? Just kidding. No, I'm not. Okay, so um, verse 13. Now, that j- the same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus. This is, this is Easter afternoon. Uh, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened as they talked and discussed these things with each other. Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept, uh, kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? It's like, How are you the only one that doesn't know this is happening? Um, Jesus says, what things? About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and and they crucified him. Listen to this. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb, John and Peter who sprinted, and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. So the story of the road to Emmaus is this. You have two disciples walking home to Emmaus. And uh, they're, they're a married couple. We know that Cleopas was married to Mary. And so we know that because of John chapter 19. So a married couple is walking home. And as they're walking home on that, um, that slow kind of journey back, Jesus is disguised himself or they don't recognize his resurrected body um, until the end of the story, which doesn't have too, too much significance apart from the fact that either it's part of the story that they were just focused on what they were focused on and they didn't recognize him until he breaks bread or that there's something different about the resurrected body of Jesus. Um, so it, that, that, don't speculate too much on that. The point of the story, you'll get to the, we'll get to the end and what happens. It's powerful. But they're, they're walking along and they, Jesus begins to discuss things with them and they tell him about uh, verse 21. This is what kind of reveals. They're downcast, and it says, We had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Here's the the deal. They're revealing to Jesus that, um, even though they don't know it's Jesus, Jesus didn't meet their expectations. They're in despair because Jesus was a wannabe Messiah. How do we know that? Well, in the first century, wannabe Messiahs die. In fact, Many would-be Messiahs died before the time of Jesus. Simon the Star, 
Judah the Hammer. These are all clever names of messianic figures that lived before Jesus that did what they expected Messiahs to do. They rallied troops in an army and they, they purified the temple. They kicked out the enemies of Israel and they had a military victory in Jerusalem. And where does that come from? Well, it comes from the statement, verse 21, we had hoped he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Deep into the thought, deep into the, the life of, of Cleopas and Mary and so many Jewish individuals and people in the community in the first century was the idea that God would one day redeem Israel. It, the story is, in Exodus, God makes them a nation and a people. We notice God frees them out of Egypt and, and, and uh, makes a covenant with the people of Israel. And they become the people of God. And they're to live in a way that represents God on earth. And then the judges come on. And then they eventually have a king. And then a king named David establishes Jerusalem and Israel, fortifies the city, fortifies Israel as a land, and, and, and has a great conquest against the enemies of Israel. Um, and he obeys God. He's a man after God's heart. He has a son named Solomon and he builds a temple. And the temple is where God's presence rested. But the people of Israel continue on and they don't follow God's way. They are exiled. Um, they are kicked out of Jerusalem. And they, the prophets in exile begin to dream of a time when God would redeem Israel. And it doesn't happen the way they thought it would. So for hundreds of years, the Israelites are expecting a Messiah figure like David who would come with an army and a sword and defeat Israel's enemies. And Cleopas and Mary are walking home as followers of Jesus, expecting that Jesus was, about, was going to do this, but he died on a cross. He missed, they miss it. What are they doing? They're living in the wrong story. Go to the next slide. So this is what happens. Let's keep going. It's going to answer our question. Uh, he said to them, this is Jesus, now how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. What was said in all the scriptures, what was concerning Jesus. The scriptures refer to the Old Testament. As they approached the village uh, to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he was going farther. Uh, But they urged him strongly, um, saying, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in and stayed with them. So Jesus says, how foolish you are to miss the real story of the scriptures. And he begins to articulate and explain the story of God, beginning with Moses in Exodus, and then the prophets, and the Psalms probably. But showing the story of God all points to Jesus. In other words, go to the next slide. Jesus tells the story in a different way. Jesus tells the Old Testament in a way that it reinterprets him. Jesus reinterprets the story to show you that actually he is the fulfillment of all the things that were promised in the Old Testament. Brothers and sisters, this is so important. Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel. We have to read the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus. We have to see the God that Jesus sees and teaches about in the New Testament. Jesus is the fulfillment of the scriptures. Jesus, when we read our Bible, this is what I'm talking about tomorrow. When we read our Bible, there is a common storyline. There's a reason why some books were included in the canon and some weren't. And it's that the, the Genesis to Revelation tell one grand narrative of God's restoration of humanity. From Genesis on, his longing to be in right relationship with all of creation. And if you don't know how that story connects, then um, you're going to have a hard time connecting with this generation that longs for a narrative of truth, 
longs for the meta narrative, the, the greater story. This is the greater story that, that from the beginning of time it points to Jesus. And so the disciples are on the road to Emmaus, uh, on the road to Emmaus, had been telling and living out the wrong story. Okay, pause for a moment. How many of us live and tell the wrong story? Or let's not start with ourselves. How many of you have friends that believe in a story that says their value comes from what they do? Their worth comes from how, who they're connected to. How much money they make. How much sex they have. That your relationships define you. How many of you know people that tell those types of stories? Stories that if you followed it through end in, in, in despair. We, we have friends and family members that need to be told the better story. That need to be shown a different story. So, um, Jesus tells them a story that was coming. Now, let's go back to the church for a moment. Let's go back to the church and the stories that we tell of God and Jesus. How many of you have heard a different story of God? The story that says, well, all you have to do is believe and then he's going to take us out of this place. A story that doesn't involve here, the earth and creation. How many of you have believed in a God that values you based on how much you do for him? How many of us tell the story of an angry God who, who isn't full of mercy and love and justice? How many of you know people that have gods that are like vending machines? That you just, it's like spiritual karma. You just read your Bible enough and good things will happen. I have a friend that grew up as a Christian that believed that if he, if he sinned during the week, he would get injured playing football on Friday or Saturday. How many of you follow those, those false gods, those stories, those false stories? It's a different kind of story that Jesus tells. Do you know what I'm talking about? So the road to Emmaus teaches us to help cast a greater vision and tell people a better story. You with me? Okay, next one. Um, so, uh, okay, and then this is what happens in the road to Emmaus. The story, this is so great. He says, when, um, when he, he was at the table with them, he, take, he took the bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. So Jesus um, sits down, takes the bread, gives thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. He takes the role of the host. Now, next slide. The Gospel of John is structured uh, around seven signs. Okay? The word sign is semia. We're not in the Gospel of John. We're in the Gospel of Luke. I want to make a point. The Gospel of John structures his book in a way that shows you the seven signs. The seven in the Jewish community is a big number. It's the number of completion. It's the divine number. It's a big deal. So God creates all of the creation in six days, and on the seventh day he rested. So for the Jewish community, um, in poetry, in writing, there were themes, there were literary tools to number it, and seven was the finished number. You with me? Okay, so John uh, does this. He has seven signs, seven miracles. Hey, is this on or Oh, it is on. Okay. Uh, he first, the first miracle, John turns, uh, Jesus turns water into wine. This is in the book of John. And, and um, the second he, is the healing of the official son. Third is healing of the paralytic. The feeding of the 5,000. Walking on water. Healing the blind man. Now watch this. Each miracle gets progressively m- more difficult or greater, you could say. Right. So uh, walking uh, water into wine. OK, that's cool. But healing the official son and then uh, paralytic feeding 5000, walking on water, healing a man born blind and then raising Lazarus from the dead. That's a seventh sign. You with me? 
but there was an eighth one, which isn't a number eight. It becomes number one if you were Jewish. It becomes the beginning of something new. And you know what that was? The resurrection of Jesus in the Gospel of John. And you know what that means? Go to, this is John's way of saying, go to the next slide, please. Uh, something new is going on. New creation. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. That's what he means through the literary tool, that something new is happening. That, that the resurrection of Jesus is the beginning of new creation. You with me? Well, Luke, go to Luke. Luke, or, uh, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus eats a lot of food. I just wanted to put that in the PowerPoint. I thought that was good. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus eats a lot of food. And if you like food, uh, you're in good company with Jesus because he does a lot of that. But in the Gospel of Luke, he structures his book around meals. Okay? Seven meals to be exact. And here, here they are. So the party at Levi's house with a bunch of tax collectors, dinner with Simon the Pharisee, hospitality at Mary and Martha's house, dinner at another Pharisee's house, a Sabbath meal in chapter 14. He eats with Zacchaeus. And the seventh and final meal is the Lord's Supper. You with me? So the Lord's Supper is where Jesus takes the Passover meal, a central symbol of the Jewish faith and religion, and makes it about his mission and ministry, and institutes it for the church to whenever we gather and eat bread and drink wine or juice, we do it in remembrance of the mission that Jesus had, the cross and the, rest, uh, and the new covenant he gives us. But that's not the last meal. We have Jesus breaking bread, taking the role of the host, and eating a meal with the disciples. Breaking bread on the road to Emmaus is the eighth meal or the first meal of the new world. Go to the next slide, please. Uh, The table is so symbolic in the Gospel of Luke. Remember, we've talked about this. The table represents the mission of God. It represents the mission of God uh, for the inclusion of the outsider, the, uh, the, the marginalized, the broken, the sinner, the least, the last, the lost, the addicts, or the, the tax collectors, the worst kinds of sinners. God's mission is for them. Jesus dines with them. Dining and eating meals together in the Jewish community is a symbol of the extension of forgiveness and wholeness or shalom between parties. So for Jesus, this is a big deal. And for Luke, this is a big deal. He's letting you know. Go to the next slide. Luke is wanting you to know that Jesus is repairing the world. He is renewing all of creation. And he's doing this by taking and blessing and breaking and giving bread. What does that all mean? Go to the next slide. The resurrection involves this world, this city, this neighborhood being renewed. The action takes place here. It's so important. Jesus doesn't come to save us out of this world so that we're one day zapped and going somewhere else. He comes to use us, fill us with the Spirit to renew this place. The resurrection involves your world, your city, wherever you live in, your neighborhood, your workplace, your home and your life being renewed with the life of God being breathed within you. When he breaks bread, of all the stories, I mean, you think Jesus on a white horse or something with a big sword going to conquer the nations, but he, he sits down with some confused disciples full of despair, breaks the bread, and they recognize him. Go to the next part. It says this in the continuum. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. Next slide, please. Their eyes were opened. This is really important. So, um, do, can anyone re- recall a scripture somewhere in, in anywhere in the Bible where it says their eyes were opened? 
So one of the things I taught a couple weeks ago about interpretation is that sometimes we need to go to the first time the phrase or word was used to understand the meaning of a word. And so uh, we have the blessing of, of the scriptures being written in history. We have uh, something called the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, that, was date, that dates back to the third century. Okay? So Greek translation of Hebrew, third century. And the Septuagint connects this phrase in Luke to another phrase found in Genesis. So go to Genesis chapter 3. And this is going to be a huge part of what Luke is trying to do. Genesis, God creates mankind in his image. They're image bearers. And they're called to steward all of creation, to care for God's world, to uh, rule and, and, and steward all of creation on behalf of God. That was the commission we had in, uh, as humans in the Garden of Eden. Uh, we had choice to serve God or worship him or to not. And in Genesis 3, it gives us the account of how a husband and wife don't follow God's plan. And this is what happens in Genesis 3. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and all, also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. Now go back thinking of Luke. Okay, let's continue on. And they realized, or another translation, and recognized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Next slide, please. So in Genesis, man and woman had been given the task as image bearers. We all, as humans, have the image of God impressed upon us. Okay? To bring God's love, care, and stewardship upon the whole creation. That's what happened in Genesis. But in Genesis chapter 3, eyes were opened and sin entered into the world, bringing shame, death, isolation, and destruction. So the whole plan for God to dwell with humanity in good relationship and right relationship is destroyed by man's choice. Sin enters into the world. And the real enemy of Israel, the real enemy of the world, enters into the story. Sin and death. You with me? Go Next slide. The road to Emmaus is Luke's way of saying Genesis 3 is reversed. For Luke to say their eyes were open and they recognized. He's drawing a d- direct connection back to Genesis saying, Jesus is renewing this. And go to the next slide. In other words, God is doing the thing he always said he would do. That's what he's saying in the story. But the story continues that what was lost in the garden is being restored with a meal with friends and Jesus resurrected. Next slide. Their eyes were open and they recognized him. Go to the next slide, please. Um, So the task is restored. Um, Their eyes were open and they recognized him. So in other words, Luke is saying the task of Genesis 3 of restoration is restored. That we are to live now as ambassadors and witnesses of the new creation. This is what this story represents. It's that we are now as disciples and followers of Jesus to live not just as beneficiaries of this, new, of this resurrected life, but as ambassadors and witnesses. Are you with me? And we are, to, we are commissioned by Jesus to extend God's way of life, or you could say the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. Next slide. So the story finishes and it says this. They, they asked um, each other after Jesus disappears, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road to Emmaus, or on the road, and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen, and he has, he has appeared to Simon. Then the two of them told what had happened on the way and how Jesus 
was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Next slide. So the disciples are, the story starts off and they're in despair because their hopes were not met. Their expectations were not met. The stranger talks to them about all the things concerning himself and it happens to be Jesus. He breaks bread and, um, and they recognize him. And then their hearts are burning because Jesus had revealed the scripture to them. And they, they stop going home and they head back to Jerusalem to tell their brothers and sisters, He is risen. He is risen indeed. Jesus does this all the time. Here's the point of the story. Jesus meets His followers where they're at. Jesus meets us where we're at. John is missing the point. Mary is full of heartbreak. Thomas is doubting. Peter needs restoration. And those disciples on the road to Emmaus need to be told a different story. Jesus always meets us where we're at. This is good news. Jesus always meets us where we're at. Jesus meets us in our questions. He meets us in our doubts. He meets us in our fear. Last week, as as uh, Rob talked about fear, how many of you thought Rob was just talking to you specifically? Anyone else like, wow, that was only for me? You guys got to participate in what was for me? That was me last week. And thinking about, I'm holding the fear in my hands. I'm thinking about all the stuff that I'm afraid of, the anxiety I have, the, the desire to meet everyone's expectation of me. Um, uh, the fear of failure, the fear of not providing for my family. Uh, do any of you guys struggle with those things? Yeah, so I'm holding those fears in my hand, and I'm like, gosh, I'm so, I'm so broken. I, I, this is going to take so much work, and Jesus, uh, there's no way I can do that. And the Holy Spirit just promptly says, yeah, it's not for you to do, it's for us to do. We're going to do it together. Because Jesus meets us in our despair. He meets us in our fear. He meets us in our sin. He meets us in our addictions. He meets us in our isolation, in our anxiety. He meets us there and moves us forward. He is not a God that says, get your act together and come to me. He says, come to me and we'll, we'll sort through the mess. Why is this story so good for our culture and generation? Because we need to become the kinds of people that walk alongside those that don't get the story and show them a better story. Oh, you don't believe in God? Well, let me show you how God was here for you in that trial. Oh, let me show you my scars, too, and where God met me with those scars. You with me? Um, Jesus always meets us where we're at and then invites us to participate in a bigger story. Next slide. And here's what's beautiful about the different stories of the resurrection. Jesus uses the hurt, the weak, those with questions, those with doubt, those who keep missing the point. To continue his mission in the world. So if you're weak, if you're full of pain, if you're full of brokenness, if you're full of doubts and questions, if you keep missing the point, Jesus wants to use you for his mission. Jesus wants to use you in the repairing of the world. Next slide. The rest of the story, the book of Acts, is going to be a story of how ordinary disciples of Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit, continue to do what Jesus did to the ends of the earth. But we have to get this, that he meets us first where we are and then invites us in to where we're going. So the three questions I have for you is, where are you? Where are you today? Are you struggling with the same sin? Are you struggling with broken marriage? Are you, are you full of questions and doubt? Are you just coming back to Jesus from a, a life of, of kind of wandering away like the prodigal? Where are you? Are you struggling to find your identity because you've lost a job and you haven't been able to find another job? 
Are you struggling because you found your worth in, in your relationships and you're realizing right now that that's where your value and worth comes from and God wants to meet you there? I don't know where you are, but the next part is where do you need Jesus to meet you? Where do you need him to meet you? And then what is he inviting you into? I believe that so many of us are afraid to step into what Jesus is inviting us to. And it's, it's so significant and it's so powerful. It's, it's like Jesus wants us to become a missionary to the, the stay-at-home moms that we're friends with. Jesus wants us to be a missionary to the students that we, we connect with at school. Jesus wants us to be a, a practitioner of the kingdom of God um, as a teacher of kindergartners. And we need to be awakened to that reality and that story. So where are you today? Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.